Welcome to the Plain Faith Podcast, Episode 2. You just simply can't survive in the North without aviation in general. It's just, in Western Alaska, it's just, it's just part of the life up here. You have, have to have it. The Plain Faith Podcast is a podcast about missionary aviation and the stories of missionary aviators who have taken seriously Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations and are using airplanes to be His witnesses at the ends of the earth. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Your host for today's show will be Jimmy Tidmore, who, in addition to hosting this podcast, is a pastor and a pilot residing with his family in what is known as the Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama. He is very interested in promoting missionary aviation and helping prospective missionary pilots reach the mission field. And now, with these introductions out of the way, let's get started on another great episode of the Plain Faith Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Plain Faith Podcast. Our flight plan for today's show will take us to Anchorage, Alaska, where we will talk with Jim Stamberg, someone who has served as a missionary pilot in Alaska and who currently oversees the church planting ministries for a great missions organization with operations in both Alaska and Canada. He has some really good insight into the work going on in that part of the world, and I'm excited we have the opportunity to hear from him today. Jim, I'm so grateful for your willingness to join us today. I can't wait to hear the stories of what God is doing in Alaska through folks like you. And I know our audience will be interested to hear about the roles airplanes are playing in the ministry and missions work that is taking place in Alaska as well. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Jim, let's just go ahead and get into our our first few questions that, that are related to, to you and your, and your background and your family and so forth. Why don't you begin by telling us where you're from, where did you grow up, and so forth? Uh, well, I grew up in the great state of Iowa. Uh, my father worked at the University of Northern Iowa. My mom worked at a little Christian bookstore. Um, although neither one of them were, were full-time ministry people, they were both heavily influenced by the ministry of the Navigators growing up or during their lives. So for me growing up, discipleship was always a, a theme in the home, Bible studies, you know, inviting people over, sharing Christ with, pe- with people were, were pretty central themes in our home. Uh, my dad was also a, a in, the, in the Navy Reserves as well, uh, retired out as a Navy captain when I was in high school. So yeah, grew up in Iowa, great place. And, and what about your family now? You have a wife and two children, is that right? I do, yeah. I met my wife at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And yeah, I have two sons. Uh, one, 12, is Dawson. And then we have a four-year-old named Brennan. Tell us about how and when you became a follower of Christ. Well, growing up in a, in a Christian home, you know, heard the gospel in many ways at different times growing up. And I think, uh, you know, made some sort of an initial decision, you know, preschool age. Uh, but, and, and, you know, throughout elementary school, you know, went to Christian camp, we you know, went to church and, and tried to kind of always be the good kid. But I don't think, I don't think grace really got a hold of my life until I was in high school. Uh, in fact, during my middle school years, there was a period of time where I just totally walked away from Christ, walked away from my family, uh, did a lot of things that I regret and just kind of made it a point to uh, see how far away I could walk from what I'd grown up with while at the same time avoiding any sort of real serious trouble. Um, so I, yeah, that was, that was my middle school years. Uh, as I got to high school, uh, high school for me was 10th through 12th grade. And my locker partner, who was one of my old drinking buddies at the time, uh, he started, he started getting involved in this, uh, this junior high youth group as a, as a high school adult helper or high school helper. And he said, Hey Jim, how about you come and help me out? And I'm, thinking, wait a second. <laughs> but uh, before you know it, I'm, I'm going with him to this junior high youth group to help out as high school leaders and uh, find myself in this, you know, small group breakout session of rowdy junior high kids sharing the gospel with them and, and you know, opening the Bible to them and teaching them. And it uh, wasn't too long after that that I, I rededicated my life to Christ at a, at a weekend, uh, weekend retreat. 
and uh, then throughout high school started started getting more and more plugged into different different groups of uh, of followers of Jesus that that fed into me and helped me to help me to grow in my walk with him. So somewhere along the way, there was a call to missions. There was also some time along the way that you developed uh, an interest in and a passion for aviation. What was the order of those things? Which came first, a call to missions or a passion to aviation? Well, it's all really tied into when I came back to Christ, because at that point, I, I guess God brought about a seriousness in my faith at that point. Not that I had it all together by any means, uh, but, you know, he'd really grabbed a hold of my heart at that point, uh, really restructured my priorities based on his grace in my life. And I, I went through a variety of different things. First of all, uh, just based off of a variety of family influences, I had a fear of debt, I had a fear of uh, financial instability. Uh, and so at one point I was even considering the Air Force Academy. You know, airplanes sounded cool, kind of a typical boyhood interest in airplanes. And my dad was in the military, my brother was in the military. Actually, my dad was Navy, my brother was Army. And uh, I joked that, well, I can't do the Air Force because that would leave the Marines for my mom. But, I, you know, anyhow, uh, in all seriousness, I realized that, you know, Air Force Academy just wasn't going to be a real good fit for me, even if I ever would make it into it. Uh, it just wasn't a... It was more rigid than I was looking for for a college experience. Uh, but around that same time, I was also beginning to get more and more of a heart for, for ministry and what that might look like. Uh, tied into that, that financial fears, I heard about Moody Bible Institute, you know, the school that's all geared towards ministry. And, hey, what do you know? They don't have tuition. So that sounded real exciting to me. You know, it sounded really, really neat. And then as I'm looking at their materials, I hear about this missionary aviation major. I'd never heard of such a thing before. My mom's like, oh, yeah, I know about missionary aviation and talked to me about that. And, of course, that wasn't so tuition-free like the rest of Moody. But it, it did, it did uh, you know, get my interest, and, and I, I didn't view myself as a pastoral type. Um, in fact, just based off of different, different factors growing up, uh, I, I would say at that point in my life, I didn't have a very high regard for the pastoral ministry in general. So it wasn't really something that... I was looking towards to be on the front lines of, you know, your typical missionary, typical pastor. The idea of being in a behind-the-scenes role, it, it really kind of interested me. It's like, wow, I can, I can be in ministry. I can, I can use, you know, kind of more behind-the-scenes servant skills, and, and that, really, that really interested me. So I would say that for me, um, really my, my call to ministry, to, to really go back to your original question, I didn't have this real strong sense of like, yes, I need to, you know, I'm at a conference and I need to, I need to go into missions. Really for me, it was a sense that there are huge, huge needs around the rest of the world, way more so than my hometown that I grew up in Iowa. Uh, you know, there were great many healthy churches that were working together that were reaching out to the community in my hometown. And yet all around the world, there were so many unreached people, so many people that didn't know Jesus and it was more that sense of burden, that sense of how can I stay here when there's so much work to do out there and there's so few people going. So I guess at the core of my call was that. Uh, it wasn't a sense of I need to go here or this is what my ministry is going to look like. Uh, all the rest of the specifics were really more of kind of a step-by-step -step journey of, yeah, yeah, Moody, that sounds like a good fit. And hey, look at they do aviation. That sounds interesting. And so I just kind of kept taking one step at a time, not really knowing where I was going, but knowing that I needed, I needed to take a step out from where I'd grown up. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'd like to ask folks about that because everyone's call to ministry or missions is, is a little bit different. And we sort of have these ideas in our minds about what it should look like. And then when mine doesn't look that way, I think, well, I'm not really being called. I'm not really supposed to do this. So it's good to hear about all the different ways that God leads people into, into ministry. And I, and I think uh, sometimes that word lead might be better than call because when we hear the word call, we are expecting something uh, written in the sky in the clouds or something like that. That's and, so and oftentimes true. We're, we're just led and guided slowly by God into something that's and it. it just makes sense. So that's it. Uh, that's, I mean, you think, you think about it. I mean, really the, the truth is we're all called to, we're all called to make disciples. We're all called to love Jesus. We're all called to accept the gospel. But as far as what the specifics look like for each person, you know, it, like you said, it's, it's a, it's a step-by-step -step leading that God does in their life. That's right. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Do you have any other advice for someone who might be feeling right now like God is leading them or calling them into, into ministry or missions? Do you have anything you could 
else you could say that might help them as they're working through that? Yeah, a variety of things. One, get get plugged into a local church. Uh, make sure that you're actively being discipled by somebody and taking the effort to disciple somebody else. Uh, and explore your gifts. Uh, you know, experiment with the serving in a lot of different places in the church and in your community and see how God is working through that and, and how God is affirming you in different ways through the different people in your life who, who know you well and are feeding into you. Okay, well, great. That's great advice. So let's, let's transition now and talk a little bit about your, your flight training, beginning with your first experience with airplanes, and, and when did you realize that that was something you wanted to, to do in your life? Yeah, I had very little exposure to airplanes growing up. Uh, you know, of course, my dad is in the military, and so things like the Blue Angels, you know, when I was mm-hmm. a kid really interested me. In fact, I think I was probably about second grade when I dressed up one time as a Blue Angel for Halloween, and the other kids made fun of me. They're like, what are you supposed to be, a Boy Scout? And I'm like, no, I'm a Blue Angel, you know. But <laughs> they, uh, anyhow, I, you know, just I had very little exposure to it, you know, beyond beyond movies and video games and stuff like that. Um, didn't really get a chance to fly in small airplanes much, and so it was really more of a kind of a typical fascination than any real uh, any real experience of any sort. Um, so, yeah. So for me, you know, I started taking that step into Moody, uh, Moody at that time, the aviation program was a two year Bible program in Chicago, followed by three years of maintenance and flight training in Tennessee. Uh, between your first and second year of Bible training in Chicago, they brought you down for a one week evaluation camp in Tennessee where they just basically, it was kind of a boot camp. They threw a bunch of stuff at you, and they, were, they just watched to see what your capacity was for learning aviation, both the flight and mechanics side of things. And at the end of that week, they told people whether they were invited or not. Oh, wow. For me, for me that was basically my first real hands-on exposure to airplanes. I had, you know, I'm, I'm going up for, you know, every day in an airplane with an instructor, and, you know, they're throwing stuff at me, seeing what I can learn. And then at the end of the week, they pretty much just say, okay, show me what you've learned this week. And I mean, that was really my first time in a small airplane was that week. Uh, and first time, you know, being exposed to them, you know, looking at them and working on them and, and all that sort of thing. It was, it was totally new for me. I had no experience with it up to that point. Then you went on and you, I'm assuming this is where the story is going to go. You ended up doing your flight training at Moody. Yes. Yeah. So it was kind of an interesting story for me because, you know, I, I obviously I went through evaluation camp. I was accepted. Uh, finished my last year of Bible in Chicago. During that year, I met my my wife, Marissa. Uh, and at that point, um, we we sensed God kind of telling us to slow down a little bit. I, I went down to Tennessee to start my first year down there at Moody Aviation and went through my A&P year. That's how, it's, that's how it was worked at that time. I did one year A&P school and then two, year, two years of flight training with additional maintenance experience peppered in there. And so I, I went through my A&P year. During that year, got engaged to my wife, took a year off from the, from the training, and went back to Chicago uh, where she had to finish off her final year at Moody Bible Institute. It was during that same year that Moody made the announcement that they were uh, closing down their aviation program in Tennessee and reopening a new program up in Spokane, Washington. Uh, and they were going to be phasing out over the next few years their program in Tennessee. Uh, and when I had taken time off, they said, yeah, you can take time off. That's no problem. Lots of people do that. You just need to know they can only get back in on space available basis, which has never been a problem before is what they told me before the school <laughs> was mm-hmm. going through a major change. So when this was announced, you know, I get in touch with the school and I find out, Hey, what, what's going on? Can I still, can I still get back into the program? And there's a, a variety of conversations that took place, but the short of it was that what ended up happening is they said, yes. You can you can come back in, but you're on a waiting list. Um, you can you can take out, out of the three three courses that you register for. One's ground school, one's flight training, and one's maintenance experience. You can sign up for the maintenance experience. You can sign up for the ground school, but the flight training we don't have room for you. And so this is what's going to happen: is is you are going to be put on a waiting list. Uh, you'll be second on the waiting list. There'll be nobody in front of you, which means that two of your classmates have to drop out of the program before we'll let you in as a full-time student. You can imagine that put me in a rather precarious position because uh, obviously I had no interest in seeing any of my classmates fail. Although historically at that time, Moody Aviation had a had a, uh, a pretty tough track record of 
of of chewing people up and 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 you know not everybody making it through. One of my one of the previous classes a year or two before me, out of their first year of flight, I think out of the 19 students in the first year of flight, like four or five dropped out in that first semester. So based on historical percentages, I you know I had a good chance, but yet at the same time, I had no interest in seeing any of my classmates drop out. Obviously, so. What I did is I, you know, I took the ground school, I took the, you know, the maintenance experience, shop experience, and then for the flight training, what I did is I, is I found recent Moody graduates who are still living in the area with old Moody airplanes that were being rented out to the community, and I got all my private training for my, during my first semester with them. I was the first one in my class to get my private pilot's license. I went and took a check ride with, the, with a, a public uh, examiner, passed my check ride, and then came back and did a second check ride with Moody to show that I was up to their standards uh, in case there was room in the program so that they would allow me in. Uh, so that went through, went all the way through the first semester like that. E- even, it was funny, even somehow ended up as the, the class president during that point, which was just funny because I'm not even a full-time student, but somehow I find myself in that role. And uh, get into the second semester, none of my classmates, although some of them have to retake their check rides a couple different times, none of them fail, praise God. Uh, it, there, was a, there was a change in the and the philosophy of Moody that was going on around that time, which was a good thing. Uh, and so none of my classmates, uh, you know, failed out, which was great. But it also meant that I was still sitting there without a spot in the program. So, you know, spring semester rolls around. And uh, I told them, well, hey, I still want to be here as much as I can be here. I still want to take a commercial ground school. And commercial ground school starts out. And, and uh, you know, they say, well, Jim, uh, you know, we don't have handouts for you, you know, hey, there's still no room for you in the program. And, and I'm just kind of confused, brokenhearted, not really sure what to make of all this. Um, and, you know, before I go on with the rest of the story, I should, I should point out that uh, during this time, uh, you know, kind of a big part of the story for us is that during this time, uh, our first son was born. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. During this time, our, we, we found out that my wife was pregnant. Um, and we which also meant that we were going to be losing our, our living situation because we were living at a Christian retreat center that was based upon my wife working there. So we knew that in the near future, we were going to be losing, losing our living situation and we we're going to be incomeless in this very expensive program. And so here, you know, this, this big crisis of faith is happening in our lives of, you know, hey, we have no money for the program. I, I didn't have any savings to pay for anything. We have no place to live. The, the program's not opening up in front of me. And, but yet we knew that if, I, if we took time off and stopped and try and kind of figure things out, we knew that the program was closing and we'd be starting over somewhere else, trying to figure out what that looked like and what that meant. And there's a, there's a very clear point where, where we're wondering, you know, Lord, is this foolishness for us to continue forward in this manner? Uh, you know, we don't have money. The, the, the program, we're, we're fighting against the program here. Uh, is it foolishness for us to keep going forward? And it was around that time that the Lord brought to me the the story of uh, of Jesus when he came out and you know and, and met the disciples as they were in the boat. And Peter says to Jesus, "You know, Lord, if that is you, invite me to come out to you." And so Jesus tells Peter to get out of the boat, and 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 Peter gets out of the boat. Now, if you think about that, if I were to go out in the middle of the water right now in a boat and start trying to walk in the water, that's foolishness. It'd be stupid, okay? All the laws of nature say that's a bad idea. The one thing that made it different for Peter, that it wasn't foolishness, but that it was faith, was that Christ called him to do it, and he told him to do it. And so we just had a sense at that time, as we talked to different people, as we talked to family members, as we, as we, as we prayed about and looked at it, that, that God was continuing to lead us forward, even though naturally everything looked like a bad idea to keep going forward. So uh, neat resolution to that part of the story is that in that spring semester, the, uh, my father-in-law teaches at what is now Moody Theological Seminary in Michigan, and uh, through his professional connections, he knew some of the folks, uh, some of the academic dean and, and administrative folks uh, with the campus in Chicago. And through, through those connections, he was able to, to bring forward to them, the, to bring to their attention what was happening in my situation. And through God's grace and through their attentiveness to the situation, they they graciously made room for me in the program. And, you know, I don't really fault anybody in this situation. Everybody was just trying to do the best with what they had. It was tough for the, the staff in Tennessee and, like, typical aviation folks. They were thinking within the box. This is what they were told they had to do. 
And so they, uh, they, they couldn't let me into the program until the folks in Chicago said, yes, you will make room. And so it was a, it was a very trying time for Marissa and I, but yet a time that unmistakably I look back at it and see how God developed our faith uh, through that process and, and gave us a bigger picture of who he is through that. So was able to become a full student in the program during the, the spring semester of my second year of flight training. And then went on for the, the final uh, year and a half to finish off my commercial, my instrument, uh, and eventually my flight instructor certificate as well. All that during that time, we ended up moving into a, a little apartment right next to the airport. And uh, we began to see God's people gather around us to support us, not just with my aviation expenses, but with just with our living expenses as well, so that we could keep going forward. It was it was very neat to see. In fact, there was a a little a little Sunday school class in my home church who they were they were reading a book called "If you, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat." I think it was the book they were reading at that time, and they were they were looking to see how they could be involved in taking a step of faith uh, as a result of that book. And so they said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna gather around Jim and Marissa and start start supporting them." And I really think it was kind of that little nugget of faith in them that we began to see, and other family members that we began to see God God provide for us in a pretty miraculous way during that time. Thank you for sharing. That was a great, great story. Uh, more than just about the flight training, but just all the backstory to it as well. So thank you uh, for sharing that. Do you have any advice for someone who is in flight training to become a missionary pilot, whether it be at Moody or, or somewhere else? Yeah, absolutely. I think the key thing is, and this is what I really love about being a flight instructor, is that uh, as you're going through the process, don't, don't just think about what's going to happen out there don't just get enthralled with airplanes and maintenance and, and aviation. View every step of what you're doing as an opportunity to walk closer with Jesus. Um, it, it, this is a, a key time of development in your life. There's so many different things, life skills and, and, and faith lessons that you learn through aviation training. It's, it's going to be a powerful tool of growth and development that God can use in your life. Uh, and so I guess I would just say, you know, don't be so, as pilots, it's very easy for us to get very goal-focused. Uh, don't be so goal-focused that you miss what God is wanting to do in you in the here and now. Uh, and furthermore, how he's wanting you to feed into other people in the here and now and continue to, to share him with others during this time. Well, why don't we transition now and talk about the place you're serving and, and what it's like and how it's different from what you're used to in Iowa and the other places that you lived and maybe what's been difficult for you and your wife to adjust to there? Sure, sure. Yeah, so uh, we live in Alaska now. We've lived up here, oh, goodness, this summer will be nine years, which in the grand scheme of things is pretty short, I suppose. But uh, we spent seven of those years in a, a rural village community called Naknik, which is in southwest Alaska, about 300 miles southwest of Anchorage along the Bristol Bay. And, uh, you know, I would say weather-wise, both here in Anchorage and in Naknik, not as extreme as you might think of a difference growing up in Iowa. Uh, Iowa, we'd see cold temperatures in the winter. We'd see blizzards. Um, but the uh, probably the biggest difference is just some of the cultural differences, uh, some of the lifestyle differences out in the rural communities. For my wife and I, we were both really more suburbanite, urbanite dwellers. And so going to a rural community was a big shift for us. You know, living a subsistence lifestyle. We didn't grow up hunting and fishing. All that stuff was very different for us and learning to learning to can salmon and put out a subsistence net and, and those sorts of things were were very different so those are I would say those are some of the big differences uh, as and, and just really living in a truly small community was was so different than anything we had ever experienced before you know our our town that we lived in in Naknek was in the winter, the population was 800 to a thousand and we frequently visited other villages that were anywhere from 50 to a couple hundred people. And until you've lived in that kind of a closed community where there's no roads to get anywhere else, and there's just those people there, it's it's really hard to describe the difference in lifestyle that that is, where you go to the post office, and you can't go to the post office without talking to somebody. You can't go to the one restaurant in town without knowing the person sitting in the booth next to you, you know, so date night takes on a whole new meaning because it's not just a date with your wife, it's a date with the community too, <laughs> you know, for the few times that you can actually have a date because it's so expensive to go out and it's hard to find 
somebody to watch your kids. It's just a it's just a totally different lifestyle for sure. But uh, as far as challenges, um, you know, there there were the challenges of the fact that we had to do our grocery shopping for you know three to four months at a time. We'd come into Anchorage and go to Costco and load up several shopping carts and then mail it back to ourselves. That's that's work. That's tough. There's the there's the reality of of the the lack of medical care. We our son had to be medevaced out of NACNIC one time due to asthma and to Anchorage. You know, that's tough. That kind of stuff is scary. Uh, but I think probably the biggest thing for us uh, is relating more to my wife's my wife's uh, struggle with ongoing ongoing depression and anxiety. Uh, this is something that that she's very open with and has a heart to help other women with. Uh, but for us, that's I think that was uh, one of the challenges that we we experienced on an ongoing basis, and we still wrestle with, honestly. Well, thank you for sharing that, and um, that certainly we'll, I'll ask you at the end about things that we could we can pray for you about, and 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 we'll definitely put that on the list. So, how exactly did you end up? How how did you get from finishing up wrapping up at Moody to being in in this rural vi- village in Alaska? Yeah, that's a great question. So during my time in the last couple of years of flight training, I began to realize that I was a little bit different from most of my classmates. Most of my classmates were looking at MAF, AMER, New Tribes Mission Aviation, JARS. And as we would, you know, be at missions conferences, talking to different recruiters, we would say, hey, you know, this is this is great, but what kind of opportunity are we going to have for, for discipleship and, and teaching and working with, working with people? And our, the typical response from the, the bigger organizations was, well, those, those things are great, but you're going to be really busy. You might have time to teach a Sunday school class, but you're going to be really busy. And we began to realize that while uh, those organizations are excellent and what they're doing is right on the money of what they should be doing, that it really wouldn't be a good fit for us. I, 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 wasn't, the, I wasn't the right person to be wrenching on airplanes and flying airplanes you know, 40 or 50 hours a week that the, if I had done that, there would have been gifts that God had given me that I would be frustrated at not being able to use. So we began to kind of think through what are some other opportunities. And that's when we heard about what Send North was doing uh, and is doing up here in Alaska and northern Canada. Uh, specifically in Alaska, the, the idea is that we have a, a regional church planting focus in the villages. And we like to have a pilot that's primary focus is people ministry but that has that flying skill that's often based in a hub and can, can help provide support and encouragement to the regional team and also do some itinerant ministry, do some camp flying. And the more we heard about that, the short story is we, we really liked it. Now, it took us a couple of years to get up here because, uh, first of all, as I mentioned, my wife had been struggling with, with depression and a uh, very stressful couple of years after our first son was born. And so, uh, send, they accepted us provisionally. First of all, they wanted us to, to finish paying off the, the debt that we had left from school. And second of all, they wanted us to have some time of stability as a family. So I had an opportunity to teach uh, locally in, in the Elizabethan, Tennessee community for a couple of years for a high school aviation program before moving up to Alaska. And that was a great time. I, I enjoyed the job, first of all. Uh, it was an anti-drugs and alcohol program for, for uh, high school kids. Uh, but then also it was just a great time for my wife and I to get really plugged into a, a good church down there and to have some time of stability before we, before we moved on. But yeah, so that, that's kind of the short of it is basically we, we wanted to use those aviation skills, but be more directly involved in, in people ministry than the typical bigger organizations would, would allow. And one of the few places that we found that was doing that was what Send in Alaska. Okay, very good. Could you tell us, you've, you've mentioned Send and, and, I think our audience would love to hear more about that organization. If if you want to take a minute and maybe share the focus and the emphasis of, of, of Send North up there in Alaska and Canada as well. Is that right? Sure. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So Send North, the, the history is, is a little bit like you can't just tell the history of the child. You have to help tell the history of the parents as well. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of two sides to our history. One is back in the 1930s, uh, we started out as what's called a Central Alaska Mission with a guy named Vince Joy, pioneering missionary. I don't know if you can even, it's hard to even imagine what Alaska would have looked like back in the 1930s, uh, you know, before World War II, before the Alcan Highway was built. And he was based, his ministry, out of the Copper River Basin, Glen Allen area now, and uh, working with uh, Native Alaskans and, and sharing the gospel with people, planting churches. 
through his ministry, about 20 years later, three institutions were developed, a Bible college, a radio station, and a health clinic. Uh, and those are all based in Glen Allen as well. Uh, but also around that same time, in the, in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, far, what's called, what was called Far Eastern Gospel Crusaded started in Japan, the Philippines, with former servicemen and women who wanted to go back to those places with Bibles instead of guns. Uh, eventually, Far Eastern Gospel Crusade became Synod International, and eventually Synod International and Central Alaska Mission joined into one organization. Uh, so that's a little bit of our history. Send International now is located, uh, it's a global organization, so we have people within our organization from Europe, from Canada, U.S., Australia, uh, Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, we've got from all over, and then we have receiving areas or fields mostly in Europe and Asia, but then also in Alaska and northern Canada as well. So within Send North, our, our heartbeat is to is to make northern disciple makers. So we want to see... Uh, the local people in the communities become disciple makers themselves. Uh, we have a, a focus and a heart to see r- regional churches planted, uh, and by that we mean you know you might have a hub village of a, of four or five hundred people or a thousand people, but then you have all these these smaller outlying villages around them, anywhere from fifty people to a few hundred people, and we're recognizing that part of church planting up here is recognizing that we can't think of church as just the Christians in the community of 50 people. We need to think of it as the within the whole region, tying those people together, uh, helping them to connect with one another and encourage one another. Um, but yeah, our, our ministry here in the north with uh, with Sin North and Alaska, Northern Canada, is primarily amongst uh, Native Alaskans and First Nations people. Uh, but it's it's a lot more than that as well. And we're even beginning to look at the the urban areas in the north and trying to determine how we can reach out to folks here. Uh, but that, yeah, that's a little bit about Sin North and, and what we're doing and our history. Okay, I appreciate you sharing about that. In a little bit, we'll, we'll get to asking some questions about the the way that airplanes are being used there and how uh, that contributes to the work that you're doing. But before we do that, uh, can you think of something about being on the on the mission field in Alaska that you simply did not expect at all and, and took you completely by surprise? Well, I think two things. Two things come to mind. One, uh, in NACNIC, we had done a lot of uh, study to understand the, the culture of the local people better. And for us, we began to realize that NACNIC was a very unique community because although it had uh, a mixed community of about half white, half native Alaskan, we began to realize the culture there was really more dominated by the commercial fishing culture. So that was an interesting thing. Uh, but I think probably more on the ministry side of things, uh, one thing that really began to surprise us, one is just that there is a lot of work that has happened, a lot of Christian ministry that's happened in the North over the years, uh, but not all of it's been very effective. Uh, and, and a lot of folks have been have been exposed to the gospel in some form, whether that's through the Catholic Church or the Russian Orthodox Church or through uh, a variety of other denominations and groups, but uh, a lot of folks don't have a real strong church to be a part of and, and a lot of other Christian, mature Christian believers that they can grow with. Uh, so that would be those would be some of the things. There's also just how incredibly different it is to live in a very small community, like I like I touched on before. It's just it's just kind of hard to wrap your mind around until you until you've been in one. Is there a funny or humorous story that you can think of about your transition? Something that uh, a cultural difference that you just didn't catch, and it made for a funny situation. Well, I'll I'll say this 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 is probably more telling about where I came from than about the lifestyle up here. But, you know, subsistence hunting and fishing is a big deal up here. And uh, I didn't grow up hunting. And one of the one of the local men in our church uh, invited me to go out and get a caribou with them. And caribou weren't always close to Naknek, and so they weren't always easy to get or in season, uh, depending upon what herd was nearby. Uh, but this time, the herd that was open for hunting had come within about five miles of Naknek. And Snow was on the ground, so he put me on the back of his snow machine, and we went out, and I brought my thirty out 6 that was uh, given to me by a friend of mine, and, and we went out there and and uh, found one, and he said, okay, you're going to do that one? Okay, shoot at it. And he showed me how to get all stanced up and ready, and I shot at it, and I missed. And so, you know, the, the herd kind of scattered a little bit, and so we, we repositioned ourselves and, and tried again, and, and I missed again. And he, he asked me, what do you got that gun scoped in at? And I, 
yeah, I had no idea that I needed to do that sort of thing beforehand. So it was a good a good lesson for me in my complete and utter ignorance and and <laughs> and all right. things hunting. But uh, but we did end up getting one that day. He ended up kind of figuring out that I was shooting low or shooting high, and we ended up getting him. And we were back within an hour with that caribou. So that was that was my one large game hunting experience. I'm still a pretty pathetic hunter, but. Uh, we, we we keep learning as we, the longer we we live up here. That's that's for sure. Well, why don't we transition now to talk about something that our listeners will certainly be interested in, and that is about the types of airplanes that are being used with within the Sin North organization and the and the sorts of uh, flying activities that take place um, among the missionaries who are using the airplanes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we really have kind of two main scopes to our aviation within Send North. Uh, we have, I'll start with the more stereotypical stuff. So we have uh, a blatant 90s model Beechcraft Bonanza that's based here in Anchorage. It's turbocharged, de-ice in the wings, tip tank, full IFR. Um, great airplane for going high, far, and fast. Uh, and it's flown by our, by Jerry Casey, our chief pilot, and uh, he's got, got uh, a lifetime of flying experience. He ran an air taxi, air charter in Colorado before he uh, came to know the Lord and before he started doing missions flying. And uh, But he, he's our full-time chief pilot, and all that airplane is used for is for longer trips, pretty much. Um, so that's kind of... That's kind of what most people probably think of when they think of mission aviation, but that's really not our normal gig, I guess you could say. We have uh, four other airplanes, and uh, we've got two Cessna 206s, a Cessna 182, uh, and a Cherokee 6 uh, that are all mission-owned. And for the most part, those are, those are all based in villages, and those are flown kind of like how I was when I lived out in Acnick by people whose primary ministry isn't flying. Their primary ministry is... is church planting, discipleship, pastoral ministry, and the airplane is just a small part of what they do. So, for example, that might be anything from flying to a nearby village to support and encourage another team member. Uh, It might be flying to a nearby village to hold a Bible study or a church service. Uh, It might be flying kids to summer camp, uh, back and forth to Bible camp in the summers. Uh, It could be a variety of different things, but it's it's all in support of the local ministry that's going on where the pilot is always a key part of that local ministry. Uh, they're not just full-time pilot mechanic. In fact, the, the question I always ask people is if, if, if the airplane disappeared tomorrow, would you still be satisfied in your ministry? Because for folks, um, a, a lot of folks, as they're kind of going into the, the aviation ministry realm, they, they need to make somewhat of a clear decision early on of whether they want to be fully dedicated to flying and maintenance, in which case... Typically, organizations like MAF and New Tribe Mission Aviation and AMAIR, JARS, are typically going to be a better fit, or are they interested in primarily working with the people and using the airplane as long as it makes sense, in which case we're a great fit for folks like that. Uh, so that, that's primarily how we use aviation, and, uh, we, uh, and, and what we're primarily looking for with people up here is folks that have a heart for discipleship and, and want to make disciples and also happen to be pilots. Okay, so in, in that situation, the airplane is really no different than the way other missionaries would use a, a car, correct? Yeah, it's, it's the church van. Think of it that yeah, way. Yeah, it's just, it's just a piece of transportation. Yeah, and it's just because it's so much part of the lifestyle up here. I mean, you know, you look at a map, the vast majority of the state is not covered by any sort of road system. You know, you've got over 100 villages that the only way to get to them is by airplane. So it's just, it's just part of the lifestyle up here. It's just part of necessity. Now, when you first arrived in Alaska, that is the sort of work that you were doing, correct? I think there's you had a yes. role change, but when you first arrived, that's what you were doing, correct? Yeah, we also were going to be we were going to be focused on youth ministry and aviation support is what our original intent was going to be. Uh, and then we went through a shift partway through our first few years there, uh, where there's a, a couple of different leadership changes at the local church that we were helping out with. I, I won't go into the details of those right now. But it was uh, it, it threw me into a well. It did a couple things. One is it really shook up the church uh, and the folks that they had depended upon for many years. They no longer could look to, 
Uh, and then secondly, it threw me into a, a leadership position that I felt totally unprepared for. I was about 30 years old at the time. And the, uh, the local folks in the church said, Jim, we just, we just need you to lead right now. And so I found myself with basically no, no real pastoral training, uh, pastoring a, a very, a very hurting and confused, uh, small rural church of folks, mostly made up of people that were old enough to be my grandparents or, or parents. Um, and so I, I, I was, I was young, I was just learning, trying to figure things out. Uh, and so at that point, I really, I, I, it brought most of my attention and focus to that community, whereas before I was really trying to do a lot of outreach to the, to the nearby villages, and that was still in my heart, but I realized that at that point, we really needed to focus on, on helping the, the local church there get back on its feet so that it could reach out to the nearby communities better. When you, when you were spending a good bit of your time flying up in Alaska, how would you say that sort of flying compared to the flying that you were used to back in the lower 48? Uh couple different things. One is seasonal is a big, big word for life up here. Uh, I mean, right now in, in Alaska, the, the big thing that's happening is winter breakup. And so we had a lot of snow this year. And so the vast majority of rural airstrips are dirt. And so when all that snow melts, now you have mud, which means that some airstrips become totally unusable this time of the year. Or you're dealing with, you know, severe mud ruts and puddles. And uh, so seasonal is a big, big aspect of things, uh, which is really depends on what's going on and, and it's not as much of of uh well hey we just go flying today it's well let's see what the weather you know how the weather is influencing thing what time of year it is and what the runway conditions are like and it's just a lot more a lot more seasonal uh that would be that would be one of the things i would say okay so what was the most exciting part about being a missionary pilot in in alaska I think for me, it was the connection with the Bible camps. Uh, they do, there's some great Bible camps that do some fantastic work up here. And uh, just taking kids back and forth to camp and, and being an asset to that ministry, while at the same time, uh, you know, once again, we weren't, we weren't just flying kids back and forth to camp. Although that was part of it, but we actually got personally involved with the camps as well. Um, and so that was, that was a lot of fun to be really directly tied into them. We still have very strong connections uh, with Tenalian Bible Camp in Port Allsworth. And uh, our other other uh, folks in the field, missionaries in the field, they have you know connections to some of the other Bible camps around the state. And I think for me personally, that was that was one of the highlights. Well, Jim, before we move on, let me see if you could give us some advice for someone who might be interested in coming on board with an organization like Sin North versus one of the one of the other very good organizations like. Mission Aviation Fellowship and New Tribes Mission and and JARS and so forth. You've you've mentioned that already that there are a little bit of differences in the types of things that you would be doing and looking for. So, could you elaborate on the way an individual like that should do their flight training? What sort of things they should focus on in their flight training and the sorts of things that you would be looking for to, in in a pilot that you would recruit to send north? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for us, you know, one of the biggest things that's so critical up here is just decision making. We're not doing a lot of IFR flying. Uh, in fact, our policy has for uh, our policy for Sin North is that you either either need to be dual pilot or have a autopilot to do any IFR flying up here. So the vast majority of all of our flying and all of our village flying is VFR flying, and it's so often about weather decisions. So it, it's usually not technical flying. It's usually not complicated flying. It's it's heavily decision making oriented flying. Uh, Alaska, as you know, has a has a pretty bad rap for aviation related deaths. Uh, and uh, just this winter, uh, lost a, uh, another family uh, in the Port Allsworth area. A Christian man and his two kids and and another pilot. And uh, it's just it's hard. It's hard to watch. Uh, but it's it's. It just happens up here. And so it's so, so important that people learn to make good decisions and learn to be conservative in their decision-making, especially in ministry. This, we're not running a medevac here, you know. Uh, we're not running life or death stuff. Uh, people need to know that, hey, you know what, this can wait till tomorrow when there's better weather. Uh, so that's, that's really probably the number one thing in my mind is just decision-making and weather and being a very conservative pilot. The second thing I would add is the importance of 
soft field uh, and soft field operations and gravel operations uh, are two other very important things. Uh, you know, and, and and you know, thinking about which way you park the airplane or which way you taxi in relation to the wind and how that's going to affect the propeller and where you're doing your run up and uh, and avoiding getting the nose wheel stuck in the mud. <laughs> All that kind of stuff is also very, very relevant to uh, to the majority of our pilots in the bush as well. Okay, so how and where did most of your pilots receive their training? A uh, wide variety. Uh, I think we've got one other guy that graduated with me from Moody Aviation. Uh, I got some guys that went to SMAT in Michigan, uh, Letourneau, uh, uh, Mata, and and Arlington, Washington. Uh, so a, a variety of different a variety of different places. Some folks just private training. Uh, mm -hmm. And in fact, I think, you know, one thing I didn't touch on before is we know we have, I don't know, probably about eight pilots with our organization. Most of them are all in the villages. But we also have uh, a number of folks that have their own airplanes as well. So we have five airplanes owned by the organization, but there's several of our people that also have their own airplanes as well. To fly one of our airplanes we require folks to have a commercial license. They don't have to have an A&P, but they need to have a commercial license. But folks can own their own airplanes uh, and, and do the ministry they need to do, and, and not all of them have commercial licenses. So, uh, yeah, but a, really a wide variety of people have come from. We're, we're really actually a good fit for folks that haven't gone through a place like Moody. I mean, if they've gone through a place like Moody or Letourneau, that's obviously great. We would never never turn that down, but... You know, once again, we're we're looking for people that are more relaxed in their approach to aviation, not in their approach to, to flying or standards or safety, but more relaxed. You know, in the sense that they're not they're not as driven to accomplish aviation related goals per se. Uh, mm -hmm. That they're that they're they're willing to take more time with people, more time with the local church, and so because of that, a lot of times the folks that come. Uh, kind of an alternative route end up being a really good fit for us because they have those skills, but yet they haven't spent, you know, several years of their life dedicated to nothing but airplanes either. Right. So again, aviation and airplanes, that's just in support of their ministry objectives. Exactly. But at the same time, it sounds like, and from what I know about Alaska, from all the shows that I see on television, the work that you're doing you would not be able to do without the support of airplanes. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, it, it's just a very remote area. I mean, there are other aviation services up here, uh, but the cost of using those uh, and the schedules that, that they operate off of, uh, we are so, so far better off owning our own aircraft. And then, yeah, you just you just simply can't survive in the north without aviation in general. It's just in Western Alaska. It's just it's just part of the life. You can't you can't get out there unless you're willing to take a very long boat ride or a very long you know snowmobile ride. Neither one of which are, are realistic or practical. Uh, you know, yeah, aviation is just it's just part of the life up here. You have have to have it. So, Jim, why don't we transition now and talk a bit about struggles that you have had to deal with since being on the mission field? And, and maybe we could begin by talking about spiritual struggles that you've had. Yeah, after after I got called into the time of, of being kind of the interim pastor of the local church in Naknek, I think I think for my wife and I, we really it was it was an interesting time for us because, like I said, I felt very very much kind of over my head, uh, very much, you know, outside of my element. Lear I, I enjoyed what I was doing, and I felt very clearly that that's where I was supposed to be, and I loved it. But it was extremely difficult and stressful. It was a difficult uh, situation we were walking the church through uh, regarding uh, some of the leadership changes and some of the, the history surrounding that. Um, and then, and then also here I am now, I'm all of a sudden, I'm preaching on a weekly basis, but because it's a small church, I'm not just preaching on a weekly basis, but I'm also teaching the adult Sunday school class. I'm also leading the worship. I'm also, you know, running the whole service, all the tech stuff behind the scenes, because we're also trying to broadcast a service to nearby villages and recording and slides, just all that stuff fell on me. So all of a sudden it went from, you think of all the kind of typical stuff that happens in a, in a hundred person church. Um, and we're only a church of 30, 30 to 40 people, but a lot of those same things are still <laughs> happening and need to happen. And and for whatever reason, a lot of them were falling onto my shoulders. And so I was dealing with some, I started to deal with some very significant burnout. Uh, our second son was born a, a, a 
year or two into that process. And uh, thankfully, another another missionary in our location uh, stepped up to the plate and, and took the load off me for a while because I was really starting to struggle during that time. Um, and I think I think it was during that time that once again I learned how critically important uh, healthy rhythm is, um, how important it is to be getting regular time of, of rest, uh, regular spiritual retreat days. It's an interesting thing, especially, I think this is true in a lot of ministry, but it's it's even more true in Alaska, it seems, where where people work, and, and working is, you know, it's it's part of the culture in so many ways. I mean, depending on the village in Alaska, but just in general, it's it's people have a hard time slowing down, and so for me, it was an important lesson to learn that you know, hey, on Mondays we we shut off the phones, we we kind of hole up, we we just spend time together as a family and and, and slow down and and not be busy. Uh, it was really 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 important for us. Uh, the other thing that that taught me was it, it gave me more of a freedom in telling people, hey, I, I can't do it all. Somebody else is going to have to step up, which in which in ministry and discipleship and, and church planting is so critical to not be the person that's doing it all. Uh, and so it got to a point where I said, you know, hey, I can I can preach twice a month. Other men in the church are going to have to, you know, preach other times in the month to fill it in, or, or we're going to do something different. We'll just have kind of a, uh, you know, a, a, a you know a scripture and singing service or whatever it might be, uh, because I just began to realize that based on my other responsibilities I had running other local businesses or, or doing other flying or, uh, you know, youth ministry, whatever it was, that I just realized that with where my family was at, I, I had a limited capacity. So I think, I think spiritually that was one of the big things for me that I learned during that time was the importance of healthy rhythm, really trying to protect the family uh, and maintain a healthy walk with the Lord in the midst of busyness. Okay. Good advice for all of us to keep in mind. So, is there someone who has been a mentor to you along the way? You know, I've been, I was thinking about this the other day. I've been very blessed to have just a number of different people that have that have fed into me over the years. Um, just amazing godly men at Moody Aviation that fed into me. Um, Mark McGee, the director of Tenemi Bible Camp, has been a, a dear brother in the Lord over the years and older than me, but yet uh, just really come alongside me. And we, we shared a lot of mutual interests and, uh, and similar heart. He's been a great encouragement to me over the years. A number of the other missionaries have been sent north, uh, and other ministry people around the state that aren't with sent have just been have been fantastic. So I, I'm I guess I'm really privileged and grateful for just a, a wide variety of people that I've gotten to know over the years that have uh, that have cared about me and fed into me. That's great. How about family and friends? How have they helped you through? your your training time and 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 since you've been there how have they been an encouragement and help to you we are incredibly blessed uh, both of our both of our parents are very ministry minded uh, obviously they would love to have us near them uh, but they they believe so much in what we're doing that they have a very open hand with us and so that right there is a, is a really big thing that's been encouraging to us is you know because we know other folks in ministry whose parents uh, are not quite so, you know, even though their parents might be believers, they're not quite so open-handed with where they end up. And uh, so we're just, we're grateful that that we have parents that just, parents and siblings that just really value what we're doing and have an open hand with us and, and the kind of lifestyle that it brings. So that's been a big thing. And just, yeah, I think other, other family and friends just keeping in touch and praying for us has been huge. Uh, of course, we couldn't be here without the the financial support of many different churches and friends and family, and so, yeah, we 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 very much stand on the shoulders of of many many great and encouraging people that have enabled us to be here. Okay, thank you. All right, Jim. Well, in in closing and wrapping things up, are there any final suggestions or advice or encouragement that you would have for prospective missionary pilots? Yeah, I guess I would just say again, just the importance of, you know, maintaining a, a good and healthy walk with the Lord. Uh, you know, I, if I could throw out a couple of a couple of book recommendations, one would be Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and uh, just learn the importance of learning healthy rhythm, uh, you know, good accountability uh, and just it all comes, everything that we do, whether you're a pilot flying a Kodiak in Indonesia or whether you're flying a 182 uh, and, you know, in, in Western Alaska, 
if we're not walking closely with Christ, if we're not abiding in the vine, then none of it else really matters. Uh, so I guess that would be the number one thing. And, and you know, kind of along those lines, a secondary book recommendation I might throw out would be The uh, Dangerous Calling uh, by Tripp. Mm-hmm. That's just a, a, great, a great perspective. Even just reading the first couple of chapters, I think you get the, the gist of the book. And it really gives a, a very keen insight into the nature of, of vocational ministry. Uh, full-time ministry and some of the challenges that people can encounter in that. Uh, so, which once again comes back to comes back to Christ, comes back to the cross, comes back to our need for grace, our need for for healthy relationships within the church. So, I guess that would be that would be my my big final advice is uh, you know in all things aviation, if it's ministry oriented, it still comes back to Christ, and so we need to we need to look to Him and rely upon Him. Great. Thank you so much. Well, is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to add or anything else about Sin North that you would like to share with our, our listeners? I guess just that, yeah, within, with Sin North here, we have a, a great need for more people to come up. Uh, you know, God's providing for the different resources that we need, but uh, from as far northeast as none of it, you know, through Northwest Territories, the Yukon, Western Alaska, you know, there's probably 30 villages right now that we could place uh, a new new missionary family today. And so we, uh, we're we just praying that God would send more workers out to the harvest field. There's a huge need. and, and uh, But even if it's even not lifetime stuff, even, even short-term stuff, we're always eager to get folks up here to, to help out in different ways. Right. And, and just to be clear, when you're saying you have a, a need for 30 people, we're not talking about 30 people who are also pilots, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, anybody. We, we, we have folks up here that are full-time teachers, some folks that are very pastoral in their role, uh, some folks that are more entrepreneurial in their platform for ministry, uh, just a, a wide variety of things. But people that are coming out that have a heart to see, uh, you know, deci- to see disciple makers being made. To see, you know, people coming to Christ that catch a vision for discipleship themselves. Okay, so let me ask you this then. If someone is interested in learning more about Sin North and, and maybe uh, hearing this interview and thinking, you know, that sounds like something I might be interested in, how could they get a hold of, of the organization and begin that conversation? Yeah, go to sinnorth.org would be the best thing. And uh, that'll be a good good starting place. And there's a variety of information on the website there. Of course, they can always call our office directly here up in Alaska, uh, which, and the number is 907-929-7363. Uh, but uh, the, we- the website's a good place to start with lots of information and, and got, you know, information for how to get involved, information to sign up for our, our prayer updates and, and that sort of thing. We've got a blog on there as well with a variety of, variety of articles about ministry in the North. Well, tell me this, how you've mentioned one thing already, but... How, how are the ways that our audience could be praying for you and for your family and for your organization and, and the, the work that's going on in Alaska? Yeah, personally, you know, as I've touched on already, you know, just family life and balance and uh, emotional health for the family. Uh, the North does weird things to people emotionally, uh, even if they had already, you know, even if they've never struggled with stuff before, it has a way of with the strong daylight changes and it just kind of exacerbates stuff that's there. So my wife actually is doing overall, I think the best she's done in, in a long time, maybe since I've ever known her. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the, that some of the struggles don't continue to be a reality that we deal with and, and work through. So that would be for me personally, one thing to pray for, for our organization. Yes. That our, I think, I think I would pray, you know, like I said, that God would bring more people up and just that we would be a, a great catalyst to see disciple makers being made and to see believers being drawn together in the villages. If we can do that, then I think I think I would, I would be very grateful. And, and it is happening. It is happening, but I'd love to see it happen even more. Okay. Well, thank you. I, I will certainly be praying for you in those ways, and I know the folks listening to this episode will as well. Well, you've mentioned, Jim, about how individuals can connect with Sin North. How about the way they could connect with you on social media or elsewhere to learn more about you and, and, and maybe even become a, a supporter and, a, and someone who prays for you in your ministry? Sure. Yep. Uh, I'm on Twitter. More than we ask is my handle on there. And then also we have, my wife and I have a personal 
blog website, although it needs to be a little bit updated, but it still has a great, has a ton of articles and a lot of stuff on there, uh, which is morethanweask.org, based off of Ephesians 3.20, where we recognize that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Uh, when we were looking at coming up to the state, and we we're, were grappling with the reality of whether this is the, the right step for us, based off of my wife's history with depression, we just kind of dug into that promise that, you know what? God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. So that's always been a, a uh, kind of a heart cry of ours. So, yeah, both on Twitter, more than we ask, uh, or uh, more than we ask.org are probably the two best ways to get in touch with us. Okay, great. So I'm going to include uh, links to the, the books that you mentioned in the, in the show notes, and I will include links to the Send North website and, and the links that you've just mentioned to your blog and to a to your Twitter account, all in the show notes, so people will be able to access uh, those on uh, plainfaith.com under the, uh, this episode, under the podcast page. Well, Jim, I just want to say thank you so much once again for being here. You have been an outstanding uh, guest. It's good to hear about the work that you're doing up there, and it's good to learn more about Sin North and the types of individuals they are looking for and and the way that that might be a little bit different than some of the uh, more traditional uh, mission aviation organizations. And I, I know that it will probably have opened some eyes for uh, our listeners as it did for me in many ways. And I'm just grateful that you have had the opportunity to come on the show. I hope that you and I can stay in touch with one another. And I hope that our listeners will connect with you on social media. So thanks again, Jim. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. It's been great. Well, that's it for this episode. We thank you once again for listening. You can learn more about the podcast and subscribe to it by visiting plainfaith.com. That's P-L-A-N-E faith.com. You will also find links there to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the show, you can do that as well by visiting patreon.com forward slash plain faith. And of course, Jimmy would love to hear from you personally. So feel free to email him at jimmy at plainfaith.com or by using the contact form on our website. Until next time, remember that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The intro and outro music for the Plain Faith podcast is a song called Chipper by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.com.